0: thanks for listening to pregnancy pearls with me dr nicole plenty i appreciate you coming back to check out the show yet again i especially appreciate you taking the time to leave your comments and know what you want to hear about next so based on your comments today we're going to discuss the benefits of delayed cord clamping i've had a few patients ask me about this and a few people send me direct messages with questions and everyone's all over the board when it comes to delay cord clamping I had one patient insist on having delayed cord clamping for at least five minutes, while another doesn't want it at all. So some are confused about the benefits and some don't um, believe that there are any benefits. So I thought I would clarify it on the show today. Delayed cord clamping is just that. It is a prolongation of the time between the delivery of the newborn and the clamping of the umbilical cord previously delayed cord clamping was thought to only be beneficial for preterm babies for prevention of anemia because studies showed that it could cause polycythemia which is when you have too many red blood cells and intraventricular hemorrhage which is when you have like little strokes in babies brains from volume overload or strokes can be caused by uh, when you don't have enough blood supply to the brain so you can have hemorrhage because you're bleeding out or hemorrhage because you can't get blood to a certain organ. Now, the American College of OBGYNs, also known as ACOG, endorses delayed cord clamping for 30 to 60 seconds for all newborns, especially preterm babies, but also full-term babies, due to studies showing an overwhelming amount of benefits. So here are the benefits there's improved transitional circulation, meaning circulation of uh, placental blood to the baby, better establishment of red blood cell volume. And that does not mean that the baby has too many red blood cells, but just enough blood to prevent anemia of the baby. That would then in turn mean decreased need for blood transfusion. Why? Because you have blood from the placenta and you've now given the baby blood. And a lower incidence of necrotizing enterocolitis, or um, that's when uh, the bowel or the small intestines basically can necrose or die because it doesn't have enough blood supply. And you also have a lower incidence of interventricular hemorrhaging or strokes in the brain. We do know that delay cord clamping is more beneficial for preterm babies than full term babies, but we also know it's not harmful for full term babies and we also have those benefits for full term babies as well. However, if your baby isn't stable at the time of delivery, this could be the reason your physician or your midwife chose not to delay cord clamping. Now that you know a little bit more about delayed cord clamping, let's go through some cases and discuss these things and break them down.
2: Our first case is a 23-year-old who just delivered her first child. Her baby had to be under the bilirubin light for three days, but is now otherwise healthy. She had a birth plan, which was not followed, and would like an opinion because she is planning to seek legal counsel. She was induced at 38 weeks due to preeclampsia. She initially wanted an unmonitored delivery and wanted to walk around the labor and delivery unit, but was okay not doing so because of COVID. She was allowed to walk around her room instead. She started having high blood pressure, which was treated with magnesium and labetalol. Initially, they seemed to be well-controlled. However, she ended up having uncontrolled blood pressure and progressed to seven centimeters. Because her blood pressure couldn't be controlled with IV medicines, she ended up needing a stat C-section and was put to sleep. In her operating room report, it documents that she had an intrapartum hemorrhage and a partial placental abruption. She lost 1,100 cc's of blood. Her baby did not have delayed cord clamping at all, but was stable at the time of delivery. Her baby was in the room with her when she woke up from delivery. The next day, her baby needed to be under the billy light. She wants to know if delayed cord blood clamping could have prevented her baby from being anemic. Ooh,
0: okay, so let me take this case apart. The one, I'll say this, any type of legal question or legal case, either you need a, an expert physician to review your entire case to give you a full picture of what was right or what was wrong. I can act as a, an expert but I would need your entire case. So I'm not going to be able to give you a complete total picture of what you're looking for, but I will give you my opinion based on the small snippet that you provided. So I'll break down what you've given me and I'll give you my uh, professional opinion based on that. So you deliver your first baby, great, congratulations. I'm glad you had a healthy baby. Your baby had to spend three days under the billy light, but it's otherwise healthy. That in itself is a feat because you had 38 week delivery and you had a, had preeclampsia. So that meant that your baby was healthy. After three days, your baby went home. That in itself is great, right? Being under the billy light is actually very, very common, um, especially if you had a stat C section and a placental abruption, which probably meant your baby was anemic because the placenta separated from the inside wall of the uterus which meant that there could have been loss of blood from you, from the maternal side, and because the placenta separated from the uterus, the baby probably didn't get adequate blood supply because the placenta wasn't working, okay? That also could have been why you needed a stat C-section. I would have to read more about your report to see exactly what happened as to why you needed a stat C-section, okay? Because you were induced with preeclampsia, Unfortunately, your birth plan goes out the window, okay? All the time I see people with birth plans. We try as physicians to honor birth plans as much as possible. It is your birth experience, and we want you to have walk around um, and have a walking epidural if, we want, if you want. We want you to not have an epidural if you don't want an epidural. You, we want you to labor in the tub if you want to labor in the tub. We want you to have music playing if you want to have music playing. If you don't want Pitocin hung, we don't want to have to hang Pitocin. But when you have preeclampsia, we have to step in because we don't want anything to happen to you. And we understand that it's your right to have your own birth experience. But our job as physicians is to get you safely through the birthing experience and to get your baby safely through the birthing experience. And preeclampsia is not normal, okay? And when you're asking your physicians to do something to allow you to have a very natural process with something that can naturally cause you to have devastating results. We have to step in and make sure that you're safe. So that's why an unmonitored delivery with preeclampsia can be devastating. You could lose your baby. You could, um, you know, seize and develop eclampsia, which is when you have a seizure during pregnancy. It can be devastating. I do have an episode and a YouTube video on preeclampsia go watch those videos okay preeclampsia is when you have high blood pressure and vascular damage and that, that is caused by hormones that secreted from the placenta and high blood pressure can be very very high and can lead to eclampsia which is a seizure it can lead to placental abruption which is a separation of uh, the placenta from the inside while the uterus it can lead to a heart attack it can lead to a stroke and Rarely, thank God, rarely it can lead to a maternal death or fetal death, meaning the baby passed away in the inside before delivery. So preeclampsia is very, 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 very serious. And so that's why you can't have an unmonitored delivery if you develop preeclampsia. We need to monitor you. We need to monitor your blood pressures about every 15 minutes. We need to make sure your baby's heart rate stays controlled why because if you have a placental abruption we need to know if the baby's heart rate all of a sudden drops right that's a sign of a placental abruption we need to know if all of a sudden you start bleeding we need to know those things so walking around the room and doing intermittent monitoring will allow that but people are going to be on edge because of that because that doesn't allow us to know exactly when the baseline heart rate changes and with preeclampsia We sort of kind of need to know that. So the fact that they allowed you to even do that is surprising, okay? I mean, you have a very good nurse that was probably checking heart tones about every five minutes to make sure that baby's heart rate didn't drop, okay? So I I see that you said that um, you were having high blood pressures and that was treated with magnesium and labetalol. Let me get something straight. Magnesium does not treat blood pressures, Okay. Labetalol is an antihypertensive medicine that does treat blood pressure, okay? So your labetalol is gonna drop your blood pressure. Magnesium helps prevent seizures. And so once you're on magnesium, it will basically block calcium channels, which will allow you not to have a seizure because you need to overcome those calcium channels. Any Your calcium channels need to be overwritten for your body to have a seizure. Likewise, for your muscles to contract, you need calcium channels. And so because of that, you're gonna be weaker. And so most people, once you're on magnesium, they won't allow you to walk. Why? Because your muscles are, are not trying to contract. You will fall. And so if you have a high magnesium level, which is our goal to prevent seizures from happening, then you will need to be in the bed. So at that point, you won't be able to walk. Magnesium does have a side effect in some people of of slightly lowering blood pressure, but it doesn't treat high blood pressure. The labetalol treats the high blood pressure. Magnesium is trying to prevent seizures. Can you still seize and be on magnesium? Yes, you can still have a seizure, although you're on magnesium, but it does help prevent it from happening. It seems like you were controlled initially, and then all of a sudden you became uncontrolled, although you progressed to seven centimeters dilated. When when you say that, I know that that means your cervix was seven centimeters dilated, meaning you had already gotten almost dilated, but despite that, you had to go to a C-section. Why did you have to do a C-section? Because you weren't fully dilated. So I completely get that. I would have made that same decision to proceed with a C-section. Because when you have uncontrolled blood pressures, um, we can't wait three more hours for the baby to deliver. We got to get the baby out now. Why? Because you could be at risk for a stroke. That's the biggest thing we worry about. Eclamptic seizure and a stroke, okay? So that was the right decision to be made. Usually after your C-section or after the baby's out, usually is when we can control your blood pressures, but you're still going to be on magnesium even after that. So you said you were put to sleep and you woke back up and you noticed that your baby was stable enough to be in the room with you. Well, thank God your baby was, okay? because if you had a placental abruption and you lost 1,100 cc's, which actually for, for somebody that had an intrapartum hemorrhage, which just means that you had a hemorrhage or you lost a lot of blood during the delivery is what intrapartum means. You lost a lot of blood during the delivery because of a partial placental abruption, meaning they got in there, looked at the placenta and saw that it was already slightly separated from the inside while the uterus the fact that you only lost 1,100 cc's actually pretty good. Okay, usually people lose on average for c C-section, a 1,000 cc's. You only lost 1,100 cc's. That's not too bad, but if you were abrupting and they were actively trying to make sure that you weren't actively bleeding, then they had to work fast. And so most times if you are bleeding, they're trying to clamp everything and get the baby out and make sure that your uterus is firm, okay? So in this situation, I do not think anything was done wrong. Could delayed cord clamping have prevented your baby's anemia? Maybe. Because that's what the point of delayed cord clamping is to reduce the risk of fetal anemia, to allow your baby to get as much cord blood as possible. But the issue with your case is that the placenta was already separating. Based on what you're telling me, you had a partial placental abruption. So, could the cord clamping even been done? Because if the placenta's already starting to separate, then there may not have been flow through the cord at that time. So, the most reasonable thing would have been to uh, to do would have been to clamp the cord, hand the baby off to the NICU doctors, so that they could make sure the baby is stable. And if you're bleeding, which if you're having a hemorrhage at that time. The best thing to do if you're hemorrhaging to control the hemorrhage is to get the placenta out and then wipe the uterus free of all clots in the breed. and then make sure the uterus is firm and then we give you medicines to help firm the uterus even, even more. So your question, could delayed cord clamping have prevented uh, the baby from being anemia, anemic? In a perfect world, yes, maybe, but even with delayed cord clamping, some babies still need to be under the billy light. Some babies are still anemic. And in a perfect world, um, we would not have had a placental abruption. So you had a placental abruption at that time. So I don't even know if it could have been possible. So based on what you're telling me, I don't think anything would have been wrong. I'm not telling you not to seek legal counsel. I'm telling you based on what you're telling me, I don't think anything was done. And if you're asking me if delayed clamping should have been done, I personally would not have done delayed cord clamping in the middle of a hemorrhage with already a partial placental abruption. My case pearl is delayed cord clamping is contraindicated in cases of emergencies. All right, medical intern, what's our second
2: case? The next case is a 39-year-old who is 34 weeks pregnant with her second child. Her first child was eight years ago. She is a cardiac nurse, but was previously an OB nurse. Her OBGYN discussed the benefits of delayed cord blood clamping, but she refuses, stating that this is associated with increased risk of respiratory distress. Her OBGYN stated that this was not the case, but refuses to present any data to support this. She's asking for your educated opinion on this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can understand why you're skeptical if your OBGYN is not giving you any data. And yeah, you're right. Uh It used to be associated with an increased risk of distress if you were an OB nurse, you know, some 10 years ago. Because previously, and I remember when I was in training, we were doing all these studies on delayed cord clamping. We used to milk the cord. That was shown to have an increased risk of intraventricular hemorrhage. And when we say milk the cord, we mean like, literally, we used to take the cord and like milk, so squeezing or pressing the, the the blood towards the baby to express more blood toward the baby, right? Um, that was shown to have an increased risk of intraventricular hemorrhage in preterm babies, meaning bleeds in the brain. Why? Because we were just basically pumping too much blood to the babies. Um, now, in our study, we actually showed good results, but in national studies and, and data analysis, analysis meta-analysis, we, uh, it, it did show that there was an increased risk of intraventricular hemorrhage. We also showed, uh, saw that there was an increased risk of respiratory distress, um, with delayed cord clamping up to five minutes. And that's because once the cord is dusky, if there's no pumping, no pulsation in the cord, we, we now know that there's no, uh, benefit, right? If the cord has no pulse, that means the baby's not getting any blood. You just have a baby attached to a cord and you need the cord to be clamped so the baby can actually go ahead and increase its respiratory drive, right? It can go ahead and, Breathe. it can go ahead and try to use its own circulation. And if it's not doing that, it's sort of like a oh baby's like just sitting there holding his breath. So um, if it's not getting blood and oxygen that way, we now know that you should go ahead and clamp the cord. So you're right. Old school, yeah, it was associated. There were some studies that showed that preterm babies, if you had delayed cord clamping for five minutes plus was associated with an increased risk of respiratory stress. That is no longer the case, okay? Now ACOG recommends 30 to 60 seconds and you can delay it up until the cord stops pulsing and then clamp it and no more than 5 minutes. ACOG does not endorse that 5 minute thing. They say they say at least 30 to 60 seconds. I personally do 60 seconds and clamp. I don't do that whole like let me just wait until no pulsations exist. Exactly, because realistically you can palpate pulsations for about 15 seconds and then after that you're like, I don't feel the pulsations, I don't feel the pulsations. So I definitely time at least 30 seconds and clamp at 60 because you do want to make sure that you're going to go ahead and start delivering the placenta. I mean, usually um, after about two minutes, the placenta is gonna start separating, the mom is gonna start bleeding. So it's a fine line between getting blood to the baby and making sure mom doesn't start bleeding and making sure mom is stable. But your OBGYN is absolutely right. Um, there is data if you go to ACOG.com. Um, that's the ACOG or the American College of OBGYN national website. You can pull up patient resources on delayed cord clamping. And it is now recommended to delay cord clamping for at least 30 to 60 seconds. You can find it there, I promise. Um, and so that's recommended. Now, also, if we don't delay cord clamping, we have to document a reason why. That's how much is recommended. We need to document a reason why we don't delay cord clamping. Yes, believe your OBGYN. I'm sorry they did not take the time to give you the data or give you information or at least email you information because it's it's out there. And I know that you're a cardiac nurse now. Um, and of course, you're going back to your, your OB train of thought that was a couple of years ago. But you know, medical knowledge doubles every five years, so... Go to uh, excuse me, ACOG.com, and so you will find that uh, that data there. All right. Um, oh, and the case Pearl. Previous studies with delay cord clamping for five minutes showed an association with respiratory distress. That is true, and this is no longer the case. Delay cord clamping is recommended for 30 to 60 seconds. All right, medical intern, any email cases?
2: Yes. This one says, Dr. Plenty, I'm 41 years old and I'm 31 weeks pregnant. At my last visit, my OBGYN mentioned cord blood banking as well as delayed cord clamping. Are these the same thing? My last child was 10 years ago, and I don't recall my OBGYN discussing either of these things.
0: Um, So, no, those are not the same thing. Okay, so delayed cord clamping is just that. We're going to delay the clamping of the cord at the time of delivery to allow the baby to get as much blood from the placenta as possible to basically give the baby the benefits of having that fetal red blood cells right preventing fetal anemia and getting all the nutrition nutrients from the placenta cord blood banking is when we actually take the a sample of cord blood and you can also take a, a tissue of cord and you're going to bank that and you're going to bank that for the benefit of the baby or for other babies you may have had in the future uh, in the past or future babies you bank it because if your child ends up with autism later on, you can use those cells that you bank um, for treatment of autism. You can use those cells from tissue for uh, stem cells for treatment of leukemias and lymphomas and cancers in the future. Now, the issue with tissue and cord blood banking is that it's costly, right? It costs you, the initial uh, thing is somewhere between Two thousand and twenty-six hundred dollars, depending on the company that you use, and you have to pay a storage fee every year. So you're you're you paying that for the initial collection and processing, plus an additional. I don't I don't remember exactly what it is. Somewhere around thousand dollars a year, and most people don't use it, right? So you have to think about the likelihood that your child. Will get, you know, some type of blood disorder, or your child will get childhood onset cancers that can be um, treated with these stem cells or with this cord blood. Um, And so it's low. The thing that's most promising, uh, especially since now one in eight kids has some type of autism or autism spectrum disorder, and now stem cells are used experimentally to treat autism spectrum disorder. And it has been shown to be somewhat pro- promising. It's not curative, but children that are treated with, um, with these uh, stem cells from core blood and tissue samples have been shown to have improvement of functional status. And obviously every year, there's more and more research that comes out with that. So if you wanna do tissue and core blood banking because of that, um, because of treatment of these disorders, then yeah, that is promising. Um, but it is, it is banking on something that you may not ever use. Some people get it collected and then once their child reaches age six, if, if they don't have a di- diagnosis on the spectrum, or if they don't have a childhood cancer or leukemia then they choose to discard it that is completely up to you or they choose to donate their samples to research that is also completely up to you now if you know that you have a genetic disorder that is on the list of things that can be treated with stem cells then you should look into getting that done right and there's a there's a slew of things that are on the list and there's a a lot of companies or I think like not a lot a couple of companies and I'll put them on um, my Facebook page and on my website so you can know which companies actually do do core blood banking so you can have some information there. But there are a couple of companies that do do this for different genetic issues. And so if you have these genetic issues in your family, you may wanna consider, hey, with my next child, I wanna look into and tissue blood banking. So that I, if I, if I have a child can get my child treated, uh, whether you have a child now or whether you want to have a child in the future to treat your child with a condition, that is an option. But no, those are two totally different things. Delayed cord clamping doesn't cost you a thing. It's something we do at the time of delivery versus cord blood banking is something that you would have to contact the company. They would ship you a package. You would bring that kit with you to delivery because they don't necessarily, not all hospitals, some do, but most hospitals don't have all the kits available. Um, so you need to bring the kit to the hospital. The hospital would collect the samples and then ship them out for you. Two totally different things, two totally different things. All right, I think that's all the questions that we have for today. And our medical intern is shaking her head yes. So thanks so much for listening to Pregnancy Pearl's podcast. I hope that you've learned more about delay cord clamping And I hope that you will incorporate this into your birthing plan and talk to your provider a little bit more about this so that you can be a little more educated before you deliver. If you've been listening, you know that I'm a co-author of Chronicles of Women in White Coats volume three. You can purchase the book through my link tree on any of my social media platforms. And thanks to everyone who has purchased thus far. I super appreciate you guys posting pictures and sharing them um, to my Facebook page. Um, I love to see them. Um, and some of you even send me DMs and text messages. So I, I really and truly appreciate it. Um, if you or someone you know has had a pregnancy complication or a unique pregnancy situation, let me know about it. Email me at pregnancypearls at gmail.com to hear your topic or case discussed on one of our podcast episodes. Also, remember to follow me on Instagram at pregnancy pregnancy underscore pearls and Facebook at pregnancy pearls. Make sure to also subscribe to the YouTube channel at youtube.com for us as Pregnancy Pearls with Dr. Plenty for more quick talks about pregnancy complications. In closing, remember to advocate for yourself. You are your biggest advocate and no one knows what's going on with your body except for you. Thanks for listening.
1: regarding a medical condition. Pregnancy Pearls is a Mean Old Lion Media production.